Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of deaf studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Hi, Renske. Hi, Beth. How's it going? Oh, good. Thank you. I'm very excited to welcome everyone to this very special episode of the Destos podcast, which is specifically about a special issue of an academic journal called Revenant, Critical and Creative Studies in the Supernatural, that Renske and I have guest edited, which has just been super, super rewarding. Do you remember when we began this journey? When was I was thinking about that today, and it's been a fair few years. So it's, I don't honestly don't remember when the actual initial starting point was, but it's it's been a while. It's been a while in the making. Do you remember? That's it. I do know. I do know. So I know just because of where it fitted in like other things in our life. So when you first came to Cornwall and we met for the first time face to face, that was in end of January, early February 2020, pre-pandemic. And we met with Ruth Heholt, Dr. Ruth Heholt, who we have a wonderful interview with as part of this episode, who works at Falmouth University. And Ruth and I had been chatting about something via email. And I'd said something about the Association for the Study of Deaf and Society, which you and I are both involved with. And that's how we met. So we said we'd do a talk for anyone who wanted to come along at Falmouth University about the ASDFs, Association for the Study of Deaf and Society. So we did that. And afterwards, we got chatting to Ruth and we were talking about ideas around death and haunting and death and the screen. And she suggested we might want to think about doing a special issue of her academic journal, Revenant. And we said, yes, please. And then we spent some time thinking about our idea. We put a proposal together. Pandemic started and we we got the, the call for papers out at some point, maybe like May something like that I can't remember and then from there we had lots of wonderful submissions a real tough time picking which ones because there were loads and they were great and then yeah I think that's does that sound about right does that ring bells it definitely rings bells and yeah I think we were overwhelmed with the amount of abstracts that came in and long after the deadline had passed they just kept on coming so yeah, it also just shows how big of an interest there is in death and the screen and also the, the amount of abstracts that we got, just the range of topics you can pursue when you think of relationships between death and whatever screen you can think of. And here we are. We published it at the end of 2022. So it was quite a long time in the making, though in the world of academia, was it? I don't know, things do take a long time. But it definitely took longer because we did a lot of extensions because of the pandemic and because of everything just going on in people's personal lives. Uh, things, some, some things couldn't quite be managed. So it, yeah, it's it's a wonderful big bumper issue with lots of fantastic submissions, and it's been an absolute joy to have been working on them and reading them and and moving as well. Some of them are really, really powerful pieces. So when we put the first call for papers out, we were asking for really broad submissions in terms of death and the screen, things that were creative, things that were critical, things that were academic, things that were blending different genres and disciplines. We wanted ideas about how people make sense of death and dying through the screen, 
haunting in screen cultures, the ethics of, of screen deaths, supernatural deaths and the screen, documentary engagement with death and dying, creative responses to death on the screen, anything to do with social media or adaptation from, from the page to screen when it comes to death and screen gaming, non-human deaths, all sorts of different things. And we have this wonderfully rich response. What what motivated you to want to pull together a special issue on death and the screen? I think for me, it is, as we've said in the past on the podcast, we are in, in different death studies. And for me, an interest in the screen brings out a whole body of literature I've never engaged with and so many ideas I've never thought about. And also it, it's something I am interested in, like in my personal life, like I read a lot of books on death and dying and memoirs and the way people write about grief and death and bereavement, but I've never really studied it. So for me, being involved in this issue is also, these are also academic um you can study these ideas academically and research them and yeah, just get to know things that are a bit different because being in social science, anthropology, gerontology, aging studies, I never really know which discipline I am fit in right now because my ideas uh, transfer many disciplines. But it's just nice to be involved in something that you know very little about and then be like, oh. This is super interesting. I feel I, I know a whole lot more than I did t in 2020 about this topic. Absolutely. And, and anyone who wants to read any of the, the issue, I'm sure we'll find plenty to learn. We've got an introduction that sets out lots of different theoretical and conceptual ideas, linking death in the screen, as well as giving a sort of summary and overview of the different papers. And we've got just loads of really wonderful and exciting submissions on, on such a wide range of things. I think for... For both of us, we were quite excited about how the screen can raise for people ideas about death and dying, how the screen is able to revive the dead through through visual images of people who are long gone but make them feel like they're just there, especially with not just picture but with sound. And we'd often talked about some of the strange things that can happen when you're online and you encounter the dead in, in, in ways that you perhaps didn't expect, or you have these sort of digital hauntings that, that can come at you and, and sort of be quite surprising and disconcerting. And that seemed to fit really well with a lot of Revenant as a journal's focus on the uncanny and the weird and the strange. And yeah, just these sorts of interesting crossovers between the natural and the supernatural. Revenant is a journal that looks very closely at ideas around the supernatural, but also emphasizes the place of the natural as as part of that and and how death itself is is both natural and can feel and be sort of supernatural at the same time both in terms of perhaps more fantasy elements of, of film and television but but just in in how it can feel quite strange and make you feel displaced grief can kind of put you in this strange displaced space of not feeling quite here nor there or or in one place or another and some of those ideas, I think, just tie really nicely when we look at examples of, of screen death and dying or when we think about those conceptual relationships between death and screens more broadly. Yeah, and it has resulted in, I think, quite an eclectic collection of papers. So if people looking at film and television, people looking at books and novels, people looking at video games and also, one of the ones I really enjoy is 
Nina Barrett's paper on TikTok and how she used a social media platform or how, not how she used, how someone used uh, TikTok as a platform to find her sister's killer or to to bring justice to the murder of her sister. And I feel all of the papers show how people respond to technology or to media and how all of these things are always evolving and people use things in ways you don't anticipate or because when I read that paper like oh yeah you could use it for (laughs) for this purpose as well yeah that really struck me that piece which it it outlines the process of a, a woman called Sarah Turney using TikTok to try and seek justice for her sister Alyssa Turney and to bring to justice the 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 killer i won't sort of give you the full details because that's discussed in the paper and it's yeah quite quite moving and quite surprising in some ways but what was really interesting in the concluding sort of ideas from that is showing how social media has had to be utilized by this this young woman who is using it to to try and bring about justice she's then had to manipulate its affordances to try and make this quite upsetting topic appealing through the context of TikTok as you were saying it's this kind of like well how can I make this work to do this thing how can I use this this digital screen platform space in this way that is going to help bring about real change and and to do it in a way that is sort of fun and engaging for people who are just scrolling on their phone who who you know they're not necessarily looking for serious content or not necessarily looking to to be sort of made aware of something new but 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 she has made it work, you know, really, really used those affordances in, in an intelligent way to to bring something about and also to as a space to to reflect and negotiate her own grief in, in relation to this loss. Well, there there are two papers that focus on video games and, and death. So there is Ugly Death, Rotting with the More Than Human in The Last of Us Part 2, which is written by Dr. Merlin Seller. And then there is the paper Saving Author Morgan Red Dead Redemption 2 as a site of bereavement and grief work written by Ruben van den Plas. And particularly the Saving Author Morgan paper I found really interesting because typically in video games, when you die, you can just start again and you can just start a game again. But with Red Dead Redemption, the main protagonist, Arthur Morgan, at some point he will die in the end when you play this game. And as uh, Von der Plus is talking about in this paper, you can't, at some point in the game, you can't change his faith. So in many ways, it's choose your own adventure, but there is a critical point where he contracts TB and then he will die in the end. And so there's something there that people playing video games, they are mourning this this character or grieving for him because they will, they also know there will never be another game with him because he's dead. There might be an earlier setting but his story will will end and it's also it's a game uh, Miko my partner has played and it's beautiful like there's lots of scenery where you ride a horse and we I've I've watched him play a lot and it's very visually appealing but also I know he was very sad my my Finnish not very emotive partner <laughs> was very moved by the fact that and he he's played the game twice and then that's some, the second time he plays like yeah this is the point and after this and it's also something uh, Ruben talks about in his paper there is this point and after that you can't change his faith anymore and it's just so interesting how you can have such a relationship with a fictional character and how you can be so moved by someone who is quote-unquote not real but it, 
he is real because you spend so many hours playing the character. Well, we actually have a clip from Ruben, so shall we play that now and, and let's hear from Ruben about their paper. Hi, my name is Ruben van der Plas. I'm a researcher at the Vrije Universiteit Brussel in Belgium. And for this special issue, I wrote a paper on the video game Red Dead Redemption 2 called Saving Arthur Morgan, where I look at how issues surrounding death and mortality, loss and grief work are woven into the fabric of the game. Uh, seeing as video games are both an object and process uh, and have to be played in order to become fully realized, what I specifically sought to look at is how the epilogue of the game emulates feelings of loss and grief work and how the game nudges players to actively go through and experience this process of grief. Now that being said, seeing as video game players are also inherently a very active kind of media user, I also wanted to look at how some players strategically try to avoid the death of the game's protagonist using various means and the tensions that arise from that. So if you're interested in a discussion of death in video games, please do and our other paper that is about video gaming, uh, the ugly death paper, rotting with the more than human in The Last of Us Part 2. Well, The Last of Us is all the rage at the moment as it's coming out now as a film as well. And that's been a hot topic lately. This paper is really fascinating in terms of thinking about relationships between anthropocentrism and what is human and what's not human there's these like fungal zombies i'm not a big gamer so i've not played any of this stuff but i found both of these papers really engaging and theoretically interesting and thoughtful in terms of thinking about these sorts of different interspecies and all these sort of strange aesthetics and, and non-human things that are going on and and how how death and rotting and and dying things and and dying things becoming living things all, all fits into that so I, I find that quite a um theoretically intriguing paper and i'm sure one that that people will, will want to pay attention to if they're interested in gaming if they're interested in the last of us and if they're interested in the the, the more than and not quite human we've also got a lot of papers on television <laughs> well quite a few papers on television which is very exciting for us in fact, our own paper is focused on television, looking at death for young adult audiences in Pretty Little Liars, a TV show that I was super into. Um, I think having young babies, having something good to watch at the middle in the middle of the night that's not too good, but is also quite engaging and interesting it is yeah worthwhile. And I just remember watching this series and thinking, wow, there's there's a lot of death in this series and there's a lot of death and it's very much presented for teen television. It's quite hybridized format. It's a long form drama, but it's kind of supernatural and strange at times. And other times it's very much quite teeny. It's an adaptation from some books and it's full of glamorous, beautiful young women in very glamorous and beautiful clothes, doing very glamorous and beautiful things and just very strange sort of death aesthetics everywhere where there's lots of sort of young dead women looking like dolls who are very glorified and beautified. And my daughter used to love the intro. The intro to it has this little jingly song and this picture of this young woman in a coffin. And she'd always come and watch the intro. And I thought, oh, gosh, maybe I shouldn't be letting her watch this intro. But uh, you also watched it, didn't you? Lance? Yeah, and it's, it's also it, it's one of those shows where I watched it and I found it quite difficult to watch because it's the first time for me where I thought yeah this show is really 
too over the top whereas but at the same time it's also something i quite like because i just like to escape in shows that are just weird and i've watched way too much of like Grey's anatomy or other shows where i'm like i should have quit like that is now in its millionth season and it's still going on like they should quit at some point but i also that what you were saying uh your point about like tv aimed at teenagers i found that we have another paper by rachel dumas uh, which looks at Riverdale and patriarch I can never say patriarchal violence and the female body and trauma. And I've watched the first season of that show. And I, while watching it, also thinking this is aimed at teenagers and it is quite violent. It is very sexual. And I just feel looking at shows that I watched when I was a teenager, they were much slower, but also I feel romantic scenes often very little happened but that meant quite a lot and I feel maybe we're I'm also just getting old so many things are just over sexualized and so like I'm just watching it thinking how do I do I have do, how do they have time to do these kind of things shouldn't they be studying or doing their homework or <laughs> in reality they're probably just at home watching television there's a there's a nice little bit in Pretty Little Liars that's kind of strange and intertextual where one of the characters is telling another character not to watch television because it rots your brain. Um, but of course, everyone at home is is somewhere streaming this, this show. And I know in our paper, we try not to situate any kind of televisual or popular cultural engagement with death or dying as good or bad as kind of like, oh, here's an example of something that deals with death well, or here's something that doesn't. Because often as we say about Pretty Little Lies in our paper, there's a blend of complicity and critique in most texts where it might do some things that are quite progressive and interesting and, and it certainly is putting something on the agenda or raising an idea whilst at the same time being complicit in some some quite problematic discourses and, and ideas at the same time. So we use our paper as a sort of second introduction in a way that covers some key ideas around representation of death and dying on screen looking at some of the key debates around things like for example the the notion of, of of burying your gaze where you might if that's a term unfamiliar to you it's a term used to refer to the idea that often in television series or in films lgbtq plus characters might be killed off first and there's also various debates and discussions about who dies and when and why in Pretty Little Liars. And that's representative of lots of other TV shows. So so we just talk really about some of those broad ideas about how death and dying are represented, whilst also talking about things like Ruth Penfold Mount's ideas of morbid space and morbid spaces that can provoke a thanatological imagination, which she talks about in her own episode of this podcast, which you can go back and listen to if you're keen on any of that. And we talk as well about how sexualized some of those images are uh, and some of the the work in death studies around that so it's a nice little introduction to to death studies representation tv film kind of stuff if you're into it and you don't need to have watched the show to get a sense of it and now here's a clip from rachel dumas talking about her paper about riverdale that Lenska just mentioned entitled at its heart a haunted town patriarchal violence female resistance and post-trauma in riverdale Hi, I'm Rachel Dumas, and my essay explores how the CW hit series Riverdale uses death and signifiers of death to explore gendered experiences of patriarchal violence and the trauma it produces. My analysis considers how these guiding themes manifest both narratively 
and I think most interestingly, through generic and aesthetic experimentation, as well as through allusions to a dynamic array of other popular trauma narratives. In doing so, it considers how Riverdale discloses and navigates what I consider to be a central paradox of trauma, the impossibility and the imperative of its representation. Here I analyze also how the female body in Riverdale acts as a vehicle of resistance, a site where trauma is mobilized toward alternative forms of identity negotiation, interconnection, and the solicitation of audience desire. And, and one of the main reasons we were so keen on talking about TV shows is because we're super interested in death and television, which is also one of the reasons that we were then very excited to have a foreword for the special issue by Professor Helen Wheatley, who has a book coming out called Death Forward Slash Television, um, which is going to be excellent. I'm a big fan of, of Professor Wheatley's work and have drawn on that a lot in the past. And oh, what a pleasure to work with she was. So very pleased to have included a forward by Helen Wheatley. She can go and read. And we'll play for you now a clip which Helen has very kindly provided about what she's written and about her her work for the special issue. Hey, Beth and Renska, it's Helen Wheatley here. Um, thanks ever so much for the opportunity to write the foreword for this fantastic collection of essays on death and the screen for Revenants. Um, it really was a real privilege uh, to be asked to do this at a time when I was trying to bring uh, my own new book, Television Death, um, out next year with EUP, everyone. Um, yeah, a real opportunity to... to uh, the point when I was trying to finish my book off um, to engage with new critical and creative work on the subject of, of death, grief, bereavement and the screen. I found the, the collection moving and exciting and stimulating and I hope people enjoy reading the foreword as much as I enjoyed writing it. And then another paper that is part of our collection that looks at a television series is Garrett Schott's paper, which is entitled Netflix Dramedy Afterlife and the Uncanny Nature of Grief. I've heard so many good things about the show Afterlife, but I've watched it myself and I thought it was it was okay. It was all right. And I find it's it's I find that very interesting how people can have such a different response to the same thing and I've heard people get so much especially bereaved people get so much out of it watching the show whereas I felt watching Ricky Gervais I'm not the biggest Ricky Gervais fan I was so I feel my perception was so colored by his performance and him being part of it and I wonder if it would have been a different actor what I would have thought of the show but his uh, Garrett's paper is not what about whether you like Ricky Gervais or not, but it's about the relationship between the living and the dead. So the main character in the show, his wife has died and she's left him recorded messages and they include things like uh, remember to put out the bins and also like remember to be funny and just she gives him kind of life advice and things to to move on with his everyday life and you see there are many scenes where he's watching her um, watching these videos and I personally find that very fascinating because one of my first research projects I was interested in material culture and stuff and it's something about the materiality and the things that people leave behind after they die 
And so obviously when someone dies, they, all their belongings are there, still there. But also increasingly people can leave messages like this and through the watching of it, you, they can appear to still be alive. So, which I also think where the uncanny comes in, like this weird relationship between are they really dead? Are they still alive? It's, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy Gareth's focus on the in that paper and how spaces can be transformed by by grief. And yeah, it really raises, I think, a lot of questions about those kind of legacies, digital legacies that, that, that the living leave behind when they die, either intentionally or unintentionally, and how they might fit into our digital experiences of death on the screen. So that's a it's certainly an engaging one. And like you said, a, a, a show that a lot of people really click with. Again, I'm not a big Ricky Gervais fan, so it wasn't a big clicker for me. But um, one paper that is about a series that really clicked for me <laughs> is it's a question of degrees, morality, justice and revenge in telefantasy, which is by Sharon Colk. And this paper is looking at a wide range of television series, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a, 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 a television series close to my heart. But hey, let's hear from Sharon. We've got a clip from her, too. Hi, my name's Sharon Colcliffe and I am the writer of the article It's a Question of Degrees, Morality, Justice and Revenge in Telefantasy. What happens when the us and them dynamic that we find in horror and telefantasy becomes much more clouded? When we return to the gothic genre and we start to have monsters that talk back, that have reasons for the things they do, and aren't just objects to be taken out of the picture. It's not so much us against them, but a fine line of good and evil. What is our morality? Where is the justice? And what do we do with the concept of revenge when we explore it in telefantasy? Join me, Buffy, Kieran Walker, Lucifer and Z, and obviously moose and squirrel to see exactly how this plays out in modern telefantasy yeah this i found that a really engaging paper and then I, I think our final one on television is bronte schiltz's ghosts in the living room the televisual gothic on britain's screens which is wonderful for anyone who's who's a fan of the gothic and if you're not sure what the Gothic is or you've not heard of it before, tune in to the interview with Dr. Ruth Heholt that forms the end of this podcast episode and we'll talk a bit about the Gothic and what it is. But in the meantime, here is a clip of Bronte talking about her paper. Hello, my name is Bronte Schultz and I contributed a chapter titled Ghosts in the Living Room, the Televisual Gothic on Britain's Screens. Um, based on the dissertation I wrote for my MA at the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies in 2020, it explores what I term the Televisual Gothic which is television horror about the potential horrors of television. And it specifically looks at Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape from 1972, Stephen Volk's Ghostwatch from 1992, Seance Time from 2015 and Deadline from 2018, both from Rhys Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton's Inside Number 9, and Mark Gatiss's The Dead Room from 2018. And on the way, it traces a line from the invention of the Magic Lantern in the 17th century which had a profound effect on popular perceptions of hauntings, through to the deadly reputation now attached to the reality television. Uh, thank you very much for listening and reading, and I really hope you enjoy it. 
yeah, one of the things that really struck me about Schultz's paper was it, the discussions around broadcasting and the increasing mistrust in the BBC after they showed and released some content that was, uh, yeah, it's worth watching, reading the paper to kind of get the gist of it, but, but um, misleading in terms of haunting and what might be going on on the screen and what was presented as being real and not real. And that sort of legacy of that in terms of trust of this this British corporation, this organisation that, that's quite central to, to British national identity, um, but also about mistrust and, and challenges towards ITV, which is another broadcasting company in the UK, um, after there were a pro proliferation of suicides associated with reality programming on ITV and how that kind of connects death on the screen to death and the screen and, and those kind of deaths in response to or tied to things that might have occurred in these screen spaces. So we've now discussed a couple of papers that deal with death and the screen in television series. And we also got a number of papers that deal with death and the screen in film. And the first one we'll discuss is written by Devalina Kundu and Benson Rajan. And their paper is entitled From Shudile to Devi, Analyzing Death, Evil and Monstrous Femininity in Bulbul. And it's a very interesting paper. I've learned a lot reading this paper. There is a popular mythical creature in India, particularly the north of India, which is the Shudal. And it's a demon woman and a very dominant figure in a lot of their stories. And Devalina and Benson have kindly sent in a little voice message. And so without further ado, let's hear what they have to say about their own paper. Both Benson and I are fascinated by the diversity of Indian folktales and the manner in which the Gothic plays out in many of the stories through monstrous figures such as the Pishach, the Churel or the Brahmadwiti. Our discussion is around Anvita Dutt's 2020 movie, Bulbul. The protagonist of the movie is the Churel, a female spirit with twisted feet, set to lure unsuspecting men to their deaths with her beauty. We decided to focus on Dutt's movie and use this visual text to unpack the myth of the Churel. So, we begin by discussing the uniquely monstrous nature of the Churel, detailed in various myths that are prevalent across and beyond India. The paper then compares and contrasts the Churel with the figure of the Devi, or the goddess, and goes on to analyze how Dutt's movie absolves the monstrous of its abject status and instead defies it to critique the patriarchal order. The supernatural as seen in the movie thus emerges as a tool of social criticism in the feudal mythical context of gendered power relations. Mm, I really enjoyed that paper. I found it really engaging and I just love the way it was written. And I also found I'm quite into the kind of like rape revenge genre. So that that really, yeah, it's um, I hadn't seen the film before. So I was like, I have to go and watch that now. It, it, it was it was great. And I always look forward to to more work from from Develina as well and, and from Benson. And um, because I've enjoyed Develina's work before when she's written in uh, an edited collection on death in popular culture she wrote about the, the tv series the fall which is is close to my heart so so i'd enjoyed reading about the representations of of death in that now in terms of film we also have papers 
from several other authors and some really interesting texts are engaged with. So Katie Barnett's paper called Invisible Presences, The Elusive Twin and the Empty Screen in Personal Shopper is a, a fascinating, fascinating paper. If you're interested in the film Personal Shopper or if you haven't seen it, it's it's a really interesting film about haunting. It's a very um, a thoughtful and sort of slow, contemplative film starring Kristen Stewart. Um, and it's about her, the spirit of her, her dead twin brother, who's kind of there, not there. And the film's quite an interesting one in terms of its own use of screens. So there's some strange stuff happening with mirrors and screens and reflections all the way through. And, and Barrett really analyses those in the paper. So it's certainly worth a read if you're interested in thinking about the complexities and contradictions of, of grief on screen and specifically about twin bereavement. I think it's quite moving. We, we ensured that one of the peer reviewers for that paper was an expert in in twin loss um, so that we had that kind of different interdisciplinary take on it as well as having a film scholar look at it. So I think it's it's really helpful. It's been really helpful for us in the field of death studies throughout the development of this issue to be bringing in quite interdisciplinary peer review so that we've had people who are perhaps working in, in more practical areas as well as is people who are experts in representation to have that sort of dual input. And that's been really worthwhile, I think, for, for us, for authors and and for hopefully in the long term for readers as well. And then another topic that is discussed is the sin eater. So Helen Frisbee, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, has written the paper The Sin Eater Ritual and Representation in a Hypermodern World. And in her paper, she talks about the historic figure of the sin eater, but mainly also how it's been used in contemporary popular culture and also how there is just, she talks about this in the episode as well, there's just enough known about the sin eater to just also have so much creative imagination and really... Uh, take it to new levels and it's one of those it's again a, a figure I didn't realize existed until I read Helen's work and her paper and her podcast episode where we talk about it as well are both really worth a read and a listen and to lure you in we've actually got a minute of Helen talking about the paper as well so here you go hello I'm Helen Frisbee author of Sinita, Ritual and Representation in a Hypermodern World. Now, the first part of this paper, The Ritual, talks about how Sinita, well, what we know about Sinita's historically, and perhaps most importantly, about all the gaps, the ambiguities, and sometimes the outright fabrications within the historical record with regard to these particular characters and their activities. The second half of the paper, Representations, goes on to think about how some present-day cultural producers have used those ambiguities, gaps and occasional fabrications to talk to existential anxieties about living in a hypermodern world. So I hope that all hangs together and flows and I hope you enjoyed reading the paper just as much as I enjoyed writing it. Now, transitioning us from film to literature, we have a fascinating paper on adaptations by Taryn Tavener-Smith, who looks at adapting representations of death from page to screen in Susan Hill's The Woman in Black. And here's Taryn telling us about her paper. 
My name is Taryn Taverner-Smith and my contribution to this edition is entitled Adapting Representations of Death from Page to Screen in Susan Hill's 1983 The Woman in Black. My submission examines James Watkins' 2012 film adaptation with a particular focus on representations of the complex relationship between death and screen. Both the novella and the film adaptation are littered with representations of trauma, death and the experience of dying, predominantly by women and children, who functioned on the outskirts of Victorian society and whose existence remained largely confined to the margins. My discussion focuses on those previously oversimplified representations of gender to demonstrate Watkins's critical commentary on the marginality of female trauma. I think that sits quite nicely with the paper on Riverdale and, and patriarchal trauma and just looking at these ideas about how often film, television, screen work has engaged with ideas about death, loss, trauma and gender altogether. But all gets tied up so much. We talk about that a bit in our own paper on Pretty Little Eyes as well, how gendered so many of these representations often are around these beautiful dead women and beautiful dead corpses. And then the final big topic in our special issue is literature and novels and books. And one of the papers is called Soms Degen het vanwege Beek, Surveillance, Subversion and the Presence of Death in Thomas Oldeheuvel's Hex, which is written by Madelon Hoet. And it's an analysis of a Dutch book, which is called Hex. And it is about a mix of haunting uh, surveillance there is it, it really brings together this medieval myth and modern surveillance technology and the paper focuses on the dutch version of the book and interestingly there is uh, there's a translation of the book in english and in the english version they've they're not in a rural dutch village but he's moved the author Oldeheuvelt has moved the entire context of the book to a different location, which I find in itself super fascinating how that would work. Also, I guess he then translated the book himself, but also alongside this paper, uh, Madeleine Hood has also interviewed the author. So you can not only read the paper and her interpretation of the book, but also you can read a bit about the author himself. And it's one of the things where I read uh, Madeleine's paper and it really reminded me of a Dutch children's book where by Paul van Loon, where people are being controlled by their television. And the book is written like early 90s. And I was also very interested to then read uh, in the interview that uh, von Oldeheuvelt was very much also a fan of those books. I just find just by reading someone else's description of a book, I thought, oh, that reminds me of yet another book which is a vague way, just seeing the, the lineage of ideas. And also then for international readers, you just, because I think we all often talk in this podcast about English books, English novels, English authors, and even uh, in the interview with Ruth Heholt that we'll play um, later on in this episode, I, I am thinking out loud of like, there's, there's a lot of like UK-based ghosts and US-based ghosts, but I don't really know about the ghosts in the Netherlands, but something like the story that is talked about in this paper we do all have our own horror or ghosts or mythical creatures so 
it's definitely interesting for anyone who wants to read about Dutch Gothic, if that's a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's a really interesting paper, isn't it, in terms of thinking about national attitudes towards death and dying and also about attitudes towards technology and, and more broadly it's it's a really thoughtful paper and the interview is really engaging as well so thank you to Madeline for, for both of those and then I think that takes us really well into the second sort of section of the the issue because Revenant is a journal that not just welcomes it doesn't just welcome critical kind of academic work but it also invites creative work and work that sits on the boundary of those two things so I think Laura Canning's article forward slash autobiographical piece forward slash just amazing moving think piece really is entitled as well as instead of Orpheus making teaching and living in grief and we didn't really know where to put this one in terms of putting it in the creative or the academic because it does straddle both so so beautifully. Canning's article is is very autobiographical in reflecting on her own experience of bereavement and it's just absolutely I think we both had a good cry reading that. It's worth look, making sure you read the PDF version of that because there's images in there that are really important and integral to your understanding of the piece. And it's just, I mean, Laura's just a fantastic writer. I think that for me really stood out as the first thing I noticed. Reading this was just, she has a really evocative writing style and it's written in such a manner that it's all in sort of fragments and it moves around in time just as people's experience of, of, of grief and loss often does. Well, the way she was writing, it was like, if I was there. And it, it, it she does really, yeah. I think, like you said, there were some tears when I read that piece. It's very, very moving. Yeah, it's it's one worth reading, I think, to really reflect on the importance of those relationships between death and the screen and this idea that you can't, Laura talks about the idea that you can't kind of imagine what someone is going through and, but actually, you can, if you've watched lots of movies, you, you can get a sense of what people might be experiencing. And it can be a distancing technique to kind of say like, oh, I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, when often imagine is all you can do to try and put yourself in, in that position and, and be truly empathetic towards someone's experience in a way that that might make you quite vulnerable. And I think that for me, what really stood out as well is the the reflections that Laura provides on how that can function from the place of a filmmaker so she's making film she's showing film engaging with these ideas and thinking through her own personal experiences and also at the same time teaching and bringing her experience into teaching and just kind of doing it all you know writing thinking living feeling making this work all at once and that is really well reflected in in this piece that I think reflects the complexity of of her own experience working at a what we might call a neoliberal university, you know, in this moment in time and having these really engaging relationships with students, having these amazing opportunities to make something and put something out there. But at the same time, you know, being a parent, being someone who's had this really, really difficult experience of, of grief and loss and negotiating what that means for you and yourself. And we flagged in the article that, that there are some discussions in there of, of suicide and thinking about suicide to be aware of if, if that's something that, that, that you might want to, to sort of know about beforehand just to have that, that awareness. And a second paper that we've put in the creative section but we felt could also could have gone either way is by Wendy Bevanmog and Karina Westling in which they talk about creating a zoom play 
and they have based their play on the painting by Rembrandt uh, entitled The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicolas Tulp. And they have this modern creative response to quite an old painting. And I feel every time we talk about this painting, I do have to mention that allegedly I'm related to Dr. Nicolas Tulp. Do with that information what you please. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it, it, I feel it's a nice, nice little anecdote. And in their paper, they reflect on creating a play on Zoom. And because it's, it's right up to, if you can even remember these guys, the first lockdown and how we couldn't go places. And um, I find it fascinating how they talk about the, the opportunities of doing a play via Zoom, which was new but so familiar to us now but also the limitations of what you can show and what you can do and kind of the movement of <laughs> you can't really go off or unless you place the camera in a certain way but I just find it interesting how the pandemic which was horrific for so many people also brought about things like this where people could be super creative and also reach an audience you couldn't create reach before the pandemic because especially people who are not able to leave their house they could attend a zoom play if they couldn't attend physical theater great and we also have a really interesting comic that's presented as a sort of visual you know visual comic panels that you can read through followed by and, and sort of enjoy that that handwritten visual element followed by Jay McBride's reflection on producing this piece. So Terminal is a comic. It, it was inspired by the 1998 anime Serial Experiments Lane. And I think you can follow Jay McBride and, and Serial Experiments Lane on Twitter as well, because I've been following that recently, and that's been really interesting and engaging. And in Serial Experiments Lane, a young girl named Lane, who is unknowingly God, becomes immersed in the wired, which is essentially the internet, and that blurs the lines between physical reality and the internet. So in this this kind of comic version of it and in the reflection, there's sorts of some really interesting reflections on the idea of the screen as this thing that's seen as being quite cold and clinical, but actually has has this potential for intimacy and a real potential for crossing boundaries, for feeling sense of intimacy, for feeling a part of something and feeling engaged with something in a really sort of in-depth way. So there's this interesting discussion of liminal space and of different devices. And you get this really nice narrative story to engage with as well. So um, the piece, the reflection ends with the, the phrase, I'm not interested in deciding what form of connection is more meaningful or authentic, but in the idea that intimacy is possible, even with a face on a screen. And I think that's a really thoughtful idea to engage with and think about that also takes us quite nicely into the final creative piece that, that's in the issue, which is a short story, a short story by Dan O'Carroll called Hearing the Bird's Paws. And I know we both WhatsApped each other after reading this one, being like, oh my gosh, yes, yes, really interesting stuff going on here. It's a really nice short story about being on a train and listening to people having a conversation. And then you're looking down and you see your phone and oh my gosh, there's this thing on your social media feed about the potential of death or someone's very poorly or something's going to happen or you've encountered it and it's come as a shock to you you kind of didn't expect to see it there sandwiched in between a advert for weight loss and your friend telling you they've just bought some flowers or something like that you know this kind of quite surprising experience and what does it mean to be engaging with grief to be engaging with fear and mortality both yourself and in terms of the person 
who's on the who, who's out there sending these messages and the person who is themselves potentially at risk of dying. So you read the story to get full narrative idea, but yeah, it's got a lot of ideas. Absolutely. And also I hope um, with people listening to us listing quite a number of papers and creative pieces, just how rich entries in Revenant are and also how um, Bruce Heehold, the main editor, allows for such diversity and creativity because it's very rare for academic journals to be so open to creative pieces and to things that are out of the box and a little bit different and perhaps weird or supernatural uncanny (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a really welcoming and engaging space isn't it and it's just it's just fantastic to be involved with and we've got a ton of book reviews in there as well you can read about darkly black history in america's gothic soul you can read about Unspeakable, Literature and Terrorism from the Gunpowder Plot to 9-11. Those are both books. You can also read a really interesting review of Dark Nation Radio uh, by DJ Cypher. And that's that's really interesting and slightly different one. We've not really had a review of, of, of an audio piece like that. So that's worth looking into if you want to think about why you need to tune in, turn it up and burn it down, as the uh, tagline goes. Um, we've got a review of Gothic Cinema. We've got a review of death and contemporary popular culture. I'm not naming all the authors or we'd be here all day. And you've got a review of Hear Me, which is a short book about voices from a care home during the COVID-19 pandemic. A review of man-eating monsters, anthropocentrism and popular culture. A great review of Jordan Peele's Get Out, Political Horror, uh, which is an excellent collection. That one's put together by Dawn Keatley. We've got a review of Gaming and the Virtual Sublime, Rhetoric or Fear and Death in Contemporary Video Games a review of death memorialization and deviant spaces, and finally a review of a video game called Phasmophobia, which was, again, new to me because gaming is not my thing. I'm, I'm tempted, I have to say, by some of these some of these video games. I feel like it's just, I can't go down that rabbit hole because I already invest so much time in, in television. I can't possibly do gaming. I'm not a big gamer, but well, not just having, having read so many things in this issue, I'm, I'm always, yeah... A bit jealous also of other people's research and it's it's like like you're, you're thinking oh i might take up gaming like oh why am well why am i not researching x y or z i'm always living vicariously through other people and their works and yeah and it's 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 inspired me also to perhaps do some different projects engaging more with television or film even more than i do now so yeah it's, it's been really a pleasure also working with you and getting this is the first time really i've got so involved in editing a special issue and seeing the behind the scenes of a journal and how much goes into making sure a paper gets written, gets published, gets reviewed. I think especially during the high time of the pandemic, with so many people, including myself, we just stopped doing certain jobs. And then, it, yeah, if, if certain people don't agree to do a lot of free labor, things don't really happen. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many interesting reflections there. And it's been a joy to work on this with you over the long haul and an absolute pleasure to see it published and so many great submissions. And what I'm really pleased about as well is that it's free and it's open access and anyone can read it and you can download any of those articles as PDFs. And hopefully hearing the voices of people on this podcast today has also given you a sense of all the different people who've contributed. Now, we do have one final treat for you as well, which is an interview with the editor of Revenant, Dr. Ruth T. Holt which I think will really appeal to anyone who's interested in haunting or more broadly in in starting a journal as well and, and, and what it's like to 
to have an academic career that includes working at university, running a research group, starting a journal, writing about haunting, writing about female authors and their legacies. I think there's some great stuff in there. What what stood out for you in this one? Many things. It's, it's I, I say it in the episode as well. It's just being introduced to a lot of concepts I've never thought about um, in great detail. So the first one, the notion of a ghost story and what makes a good ghost story and the notion of haunted, haunting and being haunted. And I found it interesting when we were talking about the television series Most Haunted that one of the things that makes it so haunting is the fact that nothing happens. And I find that so interesting and how you can entice people or how much of tension and fear, etc., is just mainly also what goes on inside people's own minds and heads and how you can do, do so much with so little. Because there's, I think, in, in many... Uh, I'm thinking of uh, the comic Tintin as well. There is one of them where, uh, I, I forgot, I only know the title in Dutch, um, where the jewels of this lady have been stolen. It's not really a haunting thing, but nothing really happens in, in that particularly. <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting read, but nothing happens. And I'm just so fascinated by so many things. How can you be so mesmerized or taken by something which is just perhaps so mundane or slow pace. Like, what is it about that that you're just so enthralled in it? Mm, and I love the example of this this book that just charts loads of examples of random haunting experiences. It's great. It, so I found listening to Ruth and talking to Ruth really just left me with a lot of stuff I wanted to go away and read or engage with and, and find these kind of old books that are hard to come by, that are hard to read and that are, are just offering something so rich and interesting. And I'm really are quite delighted by this this role she seems to be taking on of giving a new life and a new lease to 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 women authors who haven't really had the due they they probably should have and I just oh, the stories about this particular woman you'll hear and yeah the stories of these women and the things that have happened to them and listening to it and just thinking like wow I, this person probably had a really really hard life and then they found a way to make money out of writing and then this really difficult thing happened to them and they were so lucky to end up where they did that will all make a lot more sense once you've listened to what Ruth has to say. And I hope you really enjoy the interview with Ruth and that this episode has provided you with some insight into Revenant, which is this fantastic journal which you can go away and have a look at. Deep in the archives, behind our issue, with more issues coming out soon, you'll find other issues on the cultural evolution of the zombie, performing fairy, folk horror, gothic feminisms, Fearful Sounds, which looks at cross-platform studies of sonic audio and horror. There's an issue on werewolves. And the very first issue has plenty to explore in terms of the gothic and the uncanny. So it's absolutely worth an explore if you've got time on your hands. And it's all free and available for anyone, which is a real bonus for, for the issue and for the journal in general. Dr. Ruth Heholt is Associate Professor of Dark Economies and Gothic Literature at Falmouth University. She's the lead for the Dark Economies Research Group. She's author of Catherine Crow, Gender, Genre and Radical Politics with Routledge in 2020 and co-author of Gothic Kernel, Cornwall, A Strange Fiction with Anthem Press in 2022. She's co-editor of several collections, including Gothic Britain, Dark Places in the Provinces and Margins of the British Isles in 2018 and Haunted Landscapes from 2017. 
She's organised international conferences, including folk horror in the 20th century, and is editor of the peer-reviewed journal Revenant, Critical and Creative Studies of the Supernatural. Revenant is dedicated to academic and creative explorations of the supernatural, the uncanny and the weird, and can be found at revenantjournal.com. She is co-editor of the Gender and the Body book series and the 19th century and neo-Victorian cultures book series with Edinburgh University Press. Ruth is on the advisory and editorial boards of several scholarly associations, book series and journals, and she is a fellow of the Higher Education Academy. We hope you enjoy this interview with Ruth. Welcome, Ruth. It's lovely to be here in person with you and Einstein in the same room, which is a new thing for us on the podcast as we're usually all on Zoom. Um, so, we just start, please, uh, with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your research interests. Yeah. I've been a farmer for an awfully long time and honed my interests really sort of over the last 10, a little bit more years, really. Um, started out mostly looking at ghosts and ghost stories because they're fun, um, and then expanded out into the gothic areas of the gothic and folk horror more recently as well victorian stuff but also gender stuff and i quite like do quite a lot of work on masculinity as well so it's quite wide mostly literature but also film and tv so i'd like to keep it as wide as possible it was more fun yeah definitely favorite we love things in spinners definitely you know the dead the house and okay uh, and we notice your research often focuses on ghosts and haunting, as you said. Um, so we just want more is the interest to you about those particular topics and their role in literature and culture. Yeah, I mean, for a start, there's some really good stories, particularly Victorian ghost stories. They're just very, very good fun to read, and the Edwardian ones as well. And they're, they're nice and short, and they've got a punch. And I just really, really enjoy reading them. So it started from there, really, but then you start looking at it, particularly like in the Victorian era. And there's a change, a sort of beginning of a change from religion to more secularism with industrialization, urbanization, that sort of thing. And as that begins to happen, it is slow. It's really slow. It's not a, like a quick thing. Um, the idea of ghosts come to the fore more. Um, they've obviously always been around and I don't know if you saw in The Guardian, well, probably elsewhere as well recently, they found the earliest illustration of a ghost they've ever found which is a Babylonian tablet and it's 3,500 years old and it underneath it, it talks about the figure that it shows actually being a ghost so obviously people have been really really interested in that sort of thing for a long time my interest as I said really comes in in the Victorian period with what's called the golden age of the ghost story and the rise of spiritualism which begins in America and Hinesville in 1848, Fox sisters, Margaret, someone else, I don't remember her name, they hear like a rapping and they, they interpret that as spirits talking to them and they're very good at publicity. <laughs> so that, that spreads in America, then it comes over to Britain with a woman called Mrs. Hayden, who's like this like celebrity Americans medium and, and it really takes off and it moves into Europe as well. So you've got the ghost stories, you've got the rise of spiritualism, um, you've got massive and terrible mortality rates at the same time, particularly infant mortality rates. So, so the whole thing like coalesces into their extreme interest in ghosts and spirituality um, and the afterlife. 
of various forms and then it carries on and we, I don't think we've ever it's not quite as at a height as it was but I don't think we've ever lost the interest in that sort of thing Brilliant. thank you for interesting and was that that like did you do your thesis or things on, on based and wanting or not so no I did my PhD on on normality on the <laughs> on the white heterosexual nuclear family and white masculinity yeah, it was in film as well, and that was contemporary stuff, actually. So so the interest in the Victorians is sort of, it's grew from my teaching, actually. So I was given the Victorians, I mean, I liked it at university, but I sort of left, left it be. Um, but then with teaching Victorians, it's like, that's, yeah, really homely interest, I think, which is nice, because then you sort of learn alongside your students as well. Yeah, definitely. I've always found that I get introduced to new things through teaching, just sort of get passionate about stuff. I would... Yeah, exactly. So I started thinking, I started even thinking about doing an NN and Victorian studies, but then I thought I could probably do it myself. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. So our next question is about a television show, and because you've written about the TV show Most Haunted for a journal article, which we think is very exciting. So could you tell us a bit about your work on that series and what your sort of understanding of the show is? Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, and a friend of mine, William Hughes, who's a professor at Macau University at the moment, um, he appeared on it. So I was a complete fan girl about that. And I'd, I hadn't worked on it for a while, and, but that was one of the first journal articles that I did, actually, which means that I did infinitely too much work on it. <laughs> I did far less now. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's just absolutely fascinating. In the article, one thing that I look at is the idea of us watching them doing the ghost hunting. So it's that idea of the ghost in the machine and like the television screen there. At the time I was working on it, social media wasn't anywhere near as prevalent, but you still got comments coming up saying that people in their living rooms could either see things on the screen that the presenters couldn't see or things in their own living rooms shifted or changed as there were the hauntings on the television. So it's that complete permeability through the television screen and into the living room. And I, I find that absolutely, I just love that. <laughs> just a fabulous idea. Um, it's also like like green thing, the sort of night vision camera and the uncanny way that everybody looks. Um, and they had, I don't know if you saw it, well worth looking up. They had celebrity most haunted, and they had like members of Girls Aloud and like boy bands and stuff. <laughs> and it's very, very good fun, and it's so unflattering that that green night vision thing on the celebrities. Like <laughs> you got Ollie Murs like just <laughs> looking green and large, and it's, it's it's very funny and it's very, very good. And they got terrified, absolutely terrified. And it's interesting to see who were like the brave ones and who were the not brave ones. Oh, the Prem is a ghost hunting show. So they go, it's not, you, you get a lot of ghost hunting shows still. Most haunted isn't around at the moment, but they go to a haunted location. They hear about all the supposed ghosts beforehand. So they sort of visit during the day and then they go back at night with the night vision cameras and they it's, it's the handheld stuff a lot because they're going around with their own cameras and then they split up and they only go off in twos or threes or 
sometimes on their own and sometimes they'll like leave someone in if they're in a haunted jail or something they'll leave someone in a cell for not very long usually (laughs) running out and nothing happens absolutely nothing happens which is just fabulous (laughs) so you just hear these tiny little like tips or taps or something and like you would in any old building and that's that's the haunting Enough that it's such a moment as a show. And I like how it's become quite an textual sort of thing that's been picked up in other places because Eretzka and I both enjoy Russian Castle. Then the sort of show about a female detective in New York who partners with uh, a novelist who helps her solve crimes. And that show and loads of other shows like it often have like an episode where there's a murder in the context of an episode of something like Most Haunted. So often kind of see this like layering of, of idea about the the sort of fear that comes in and I also stay very rarely that anything actually has to let them stop rare never which is just fantastic so where did you publish that the film Ibnus Mid no right that you've reached point of it where you've published something and you can't remember where but who knows it'll be a while before I'm there <laughs> that was like 2012 or something though it's a long time ago so our next question is slightly more broadly about a concept that we think might be of interest to people interested in death studies and, and uh, li- listeners of the podcast. So Renee, you've recently edited a collection entitled The New Urban Gothic, Global Gothic in the Age of the Anthropocene. Yeah. And, if, and you do a lot of work around the idea of the Gothic. A lot of our listeners may not be familiar with the term of Gothic or, or what that means. I think it's kind of quite an English literature idea, I'd say. Yeah, English literature degrees as well. And that was a sort of big focus, but perhaps in other disciplines too. So if you could just tell us a bit about what the Gothic Yeah, I mean, I mean, it obviously has historic uh, meanings with the Goths, um, but then it's taken over again. Where it's traced back to literature-wise is about the 1780s, 1790s, um, with people like Anne Radcliffe. Yeah, and it, it, it starts, I mean, it's really like supernatural adventure stuff. And you can see, I mean, we've got, we're right at the beginning of the novel form itself and it's very disparaged form. So it's, it's seen as like really lightweight and largely for women, which is obviously, so it's completely disparaged. But you can see why people really loved it because it's really exciting. So it's castles and it's damsels in distress and it's terrible dashing villains and it's ghosts coming out and it's secret rooms and it's bandits and it's there is there is actually quite a lot of sex and violence as well which is obviously what sells so that that's where it starts it starts largely set like in italy and sort of the the like forests and mountains of germany and that sort of thing um and then it supposedly comes home with a yeah whatever caveats around there back to britain and then places like Cornwall get involved. So Cornwall it, itself is marketed again as a Gothic location, really. So you've got the surging seas and you've got the rugged cliffs and you've got the fact that it's miles away from anywhere. And the idea that it's sort of primitive peasants and therefore it's unruly and it's lawless and you've got the wreckers and you've got pirates and you've got all these like romantic things that come into an idea of Cornwall as the gothic as well are gothic and ghosts then related or are they 
No, they're definitely related. You can have ghost stories that aren't gothic, but an awful lot of gothic texts, awful lot of gothic texts, have ghosts in them. I mean, we come more up to date in something like The Woman in Black, which is both a ghost story and a gothic text as well. I also tend to feel that England has way more ghosts than other places. Like I'm from the Netherlands, but I don't think we have that many ghost stories as we have here. Yeah, we've been we're working on. In fact, we're working myself and my colleague Joanna Parcels. We're working on a new collection called Ghosts and the Gothic. So we're obviously bringing the two together. And what we're looking at, and what I've been looking at quite recently, is globalization of these things. So I've got a friend and colleague who's in Thailand called Kasharang Kuta, and she looks at ghosts in Thailand, and there's loads of them. And ghosts in India um, and Japan and particularly sort of East East Asia, there's a huge and really long tradition of ghosts, and they're, they're very different to some of the British ghosts or some of the like European ghosts. Very broadly, they tend to be more dangerous <laughs> not always so there's there are i mean maybe not netherlands i don't know but globally there are different types of ghosts in different locations which is interesting yeah figure out yeah that would be ready that will be i'm sure will be review books once about um in japan uh taxi drivers picking up Fairs, yeah, and then to oh my gosh, and they're not there, yeah, yeah, yeah. That they've been picking up. They thought it was people who died who were trying to get home. Gone, you know. Paul, do you have a favorite ghost? I think I do. It's quite, it's like quite a straightforward one, but it, but it, it fits in with my work on masculinity really. And it's a Catherine Crow one. I also love Catherine Crow, which we'll talk about in a bit. And it's it's Count P is his name, and he's a dashing young man, and he says he he stays in this castle when they say there's a haunted room. So of course he says, I shall go and stay in the haunted room. I will not be scared. <laughs> I will cock my pistols. Is what he actually says. <laughs> he goes up there and obviously he gets completely utterly terrified, and comes back a changed person. And this this happens quite. I've been writing about it just last week. Actually, it's happened quite a lot with young men, particularly in Victorian ghost stories, as they're all gung ho and like, I will test my mettle and I will show them I have I have nerves of steel and they haven't. They haven't got nerves of steel and they come out very different to what they went in. And it's like a sort of learning curve. And I've been doing a little bit of work recently on he's Edwardian actually, um on Blackwood. And he, he does very manly men and it's men hunting, men doing this and that. And he's got a character called Jim Shorthouse who is in several stories and he gets older and older. And the older he gets, the wiser he gets, but the less sure he gets. And his nerve actually tends to give way. Which I find really interesting that I don't like shifting of masculinities because of ghosts. Yeah, that sounds race and definitely going to go a reason my stuff. I've got a new book coming up. <laughs> yeah, we're interested that so much of your work focuses on the Victorian period because in death studies, there's often a lot of like comparisons with the Victorian period or contrast with it. So sort of saying that, like Jeffrey Gore said, that we 
people have become about death to like the Victorians did about sex. Although some people say that Victorians in this country were better at death than people are now. Yeah, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on sort of the Victorian attitudes towards the end and dying. Or... Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and this is my view, there's a class divide. So if you've got the money to have these massive funerals, um, if you've got the money to have those, those, the ones that we think about, those very ostentatious, like morning rituals, dressing in mourning in black, sort of, I mean, um, but the carriages and those huge elaborate funerals, that's one thing. But if you're in the slums and you've got 15 kids, it's a very, very different thing. So it, even things like the death photographs, you need money to have them taken. So, so for some people, death and grief is going to be much more a sort of way of life. Whereas for some people, they are able to have the elaboration and the sort of celebration of life and death as well. So I think there's a difference in how you're able to see it in Victorian time in particular. It's kind of up and true of all times, isn't it? That it really depends on a lot of different factors and it's hard to make those bold statements about a particular period. I think because you do read, I mean, particularly, so that this is the other thing because a lot of the Victorian stuff we read are the novels, but actually most people were reading the penny presses and the, the like, periodical publications and sort of the pulp, literally the pulp fictions, and you get a very different view of the sentimentalised sort of little pawn sighing in my bleak house or one it's little Jerry bleak house and Paul Dombey and Dombey and son it's very different to that Dickensian sort of sentimentality that you get in the penny press very often and it's it's much sometimes it's much more violent a sort of down to earth you got lovely little baby noises <laughs> you've just mentioned Catherine Crow yeah that you love her could you tell us who she is and why we should yeah um, she's born about 1790, I think. Um, she didn't start writing until she was like 40 or something, maybe even a little bit older, which is quite unusual in itself. We don't know an awful lot about her early life. We think it was, <laughs> we think it was quite quiet in Kent. Um, and then she married and then she divorced and then she started writing. So it's possible she started writing because she was a single mum because quite a lot of Victorian women did write for money because they had to, and it's actually quite a good way of earning money. The reason I got interested in her is her most famous book, which is called The Night Side of Nature, which was published in 1848, like literally just a couple of months before the Fox sisters heard the rapping and spiritualism start. So it's preceding spiritualism, and it's, it's not an easy read. You, you wouldn't like to take it to bed, really, and sort of relax with it. But what it is, is it's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of people's experiences of ghosts and the supernatural. So it's like a source and a resource. It's really interesting and it's it's quite boring. So you'll hear that Mrs. P was sitting at tea one day when she saw her husband. He was meant to be in France. She learned later that at that exact moment he died. And I mean, and there's one after the other, after the other, after the other of these, interspersed with a load of like weird philosophical stuff. But it, the Victorians adored it. 
and it was a real bestseller. It's mentioned in quite a lot of other Victorian texts as well. And at the time, she was super, super famous. She wrote five novels, which I think are really good fun. I think they're really, they're not terribly well written, but they're very, very good fun. Um, more in sort, more in the sensation sort of line, so it's sort of sex and death and adultery and fallen women and that sort of thing. Which is <laughs> always fun, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, and they don't always die. The fallen women don't always die. They do a lot, but not completely, which is also good. So, yeah, so she wrote Fight Them, and they were really bestsellers as well. The first one, Susan Hopley, was turned into a play that ran and ran and ran, and you can see the theatre critics getting really bored of it. And we have another week of Susan Hopley, and we've got another week. <laughs> really bored of it, but obviously people are still going to see it. But why, now this is, this is my own personal theory, why don't we know her today? She had a psychotic breakdown when she was 54 and she was found wandering the streets of Edinburgh naked with a handkerchief in one hand and a card case in the other believing that they would make her invisible and believing that spirits were after her uh, it was short she went she was really lucky she got taken to um, a psychiatrist's institution it was called John Connolly and he was one of the very first people to believe in moral psychiatry so so you weren't shut up in terrible conditions and like just had given loads of drugs and left cold water thrown at you or whatever they did so it was kindness and it was care and it was good food and it was exercise and she, she got better actually really quickly but her reputation was just trashed absolutely trashed and charles dickens did not help he wrote to everyone that she was stark mad and stark naked. And he was a real bitch. And they had actually been friends before that. And so after that, in a lot of the biographies about Crow, they say, went mad, never wrote again. <laughs> but she did. And she did write again. And she did recover. But it's that whole reputation thing. And I think, personally, I've got nothing to prove it really, but I think that that has coloured how people see her now and how they'll read some of that stuff and then won't bother to read her. So is that also the end where you take it? Yeah, yeah, it is mostly. Because there are biographies out there. Very small. I mean, it's more biographical notices. So in the, the National Dictionary Biography of something, I can't remember what it's called, there's a, there's a really short notice. People do, scholars do write about her largely in relation to the night side of nature, but there's very little out there. Very little out there. And people don't know who she is. And what will you say is the focus of your book? I mean, for me, it's a recovery piece. So it's her and her work, really. And that I, the, the feminist idea, really, that there are women writers out there that we've absolutely lost and that we do need to recover them. So that first and fourth, apart from the fact that she's really, really interesting, like some of her ideas are amazing. She wrote some wonderful, horrific, gothic little short stories as well. Um, but apart from that, there's that idea that actually we do need to know about these people. And there's a lot of them out there, I think. And there's, there's an organisation called the Victorian Popular Fiction Association, which is doing some really, really good work on a lot of the recovery of particularly the women writers. So this is trying to read in Bark Fire, what would you recommend? I would recommend 
the night side of nature is well worth looking at, but you don't want to like sit down and read it cover to cover. With the Victorian Secrets Press in Brighton, I did a special edition of The Adventures of Lily Dawson, Main Servant. I think it's the most accessible of the novels. It's very, very good fun. One of the problems is it's really hard to get hold of copies of the novels. So you can't, you get these facsimile copies, but some of them are literally unreadable because they're just photocopies of old texts, basically. So it's very hard to actually get hold of them. Um, the Victoria's Secrets, Lily Dawson, they've done a really nice edition, basically, and it's easy to read. And we're very happy to be physically and at the Falk University campus today. And you lead the Dark Economies Research Group here at Salmonk University. And in 2021, you hosted the Dark Economies Conference. Yep, we did. Could you tell us a bit about what that group does? And yeah, um, we it's been going for a few years now. There's several uh, research groups at Falmouth and the Dark Economies is one of them. Um, we've got quite an eclectic array of things there's a large and growing death studies sort of critical mass of people working around in those areas we've got quite a few people working on dark sounds so things to do with like music and death metal that sort of thing we've got some necromancers um we've got some people like looking at gothic and ghosts we've got poets we've got scholars we've got a lot of different types of people doing a lot of different things around the area of like dark studies largely um in relation to like crime as well we've got crime writers we've got people looking at crime and um, we're associated i've got an association with the crime fiction association as well so yeah we've, we've got quite a lot of people there the conference the conference actually came from the one before that which was 2019, which was folk horror. It was folk horror in the 21st century, but it was historic as well. So it was looking now at how we look back at folk horror. That was in association and partnership with Lehigh University and Dawn Keatley, Professor Dawn Keatley. So we started there with the folk horror one, and that was 2019. It was before the pandemic. We had, <laughs> we had way over 100 people, and it was just fabulous. And then we decided to do the dark economies this year, and it was hybrid, awful to organize. <laughs> it's like organizing two whole conferences. It's so time. I was in my third trimester at the time, and I was really not anxious about COVID. So, yeah, you know, it's good for any day. Yeah, and there we go. And a very smiley baby, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. So it went, it went really well. People really enjoyed it. It was really nice to have people face to face as well. But it was things like, because it's online, you obviously have to accommodate people's time zones. So they're not going to get up necessarily at four in the morning to give that paper. So they were very long days as well. But it was really nice that we could have people from all over the world joining. So, I mean, there were really good things about it. And I enjoyed the actual papers and seeing the people. It was just the organisation. And you're also the founding editor of the peer-reviewed journal Rebenant and creative studies of the supernatural and it's dedicated to the academic and creative explorations of the supernatural the uncanny and the weird can you tell us a bit about the journal and why you started this yeah uh started actually started it working on it in 2013 uh we didn't get our first issue out until 2015 rightly or wrongly i saw a gap 
no, I'm less sure. <laughs> Please, to tell the truth, but we seem to be doing all right. <laughs> yeah, but you think, yeah, there are, there are others out there, um, but we, um, well, it was me, actually. I wanted it completely open access. Definitely wanted the creative in there. I was strongly advised not to have creative. I thought it was mine. I'd like with it. It was set up with money from Falmouth University. We had a research and innovation fund. So they, they in effect, paid for the setup of the website and the design. And I'm taken over with a lovely team, including Beth. I don't know. I just thought it was really important to have like a dedicated space for the supernatural. I wanted it online, A, because it's easy access, but it also means that we can have podcasts. We can have sound, we can have film, we can have artwork. We can largely do what we like with it, really. And it's, like this baby. <laughs> and it's it's meant to be just a really good resource for people. When I'm writing, we've had, but well, we haven't had that many issues, really. But when I'm writing, I very often refer back to articles that we've published. We're very careful with the quality and everything, I mean, everything always goes through double-blind peer review, but it quite often goes through much more than that. So because we're online and because it's open access, I think we have to be even more careful. And that means that the writers, people who are writing us or as you are doing a special issue with us, it helps with CVs and it helps with the reputation of the people who are writing in it. And it, we, we just want it to be a basic help for people and to get some really good, interesting work out there. Well, as, as you say, we are working on a special issue and I find it fascinating to have that mix of creative pieces. We've been reading some poems and short stories done on side academic articles. I think that mix is just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been elated that someone told you not to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think their reasoning was to not? It was if I'm not going to name him, sorry, no, it's man. <laughs> Yeah, and he's an academic. I'm not quite sure. I think he was just thinking of it as a purely academic journal. And sort of one thing or the other is what I think he saw it as, whereas I think that they can enhance each other personally. And, I mean, Falmouth itself is a creative arts university. We've just gone through the REF, which is a research excellent framework, and we put in an awful lot of creative work and it is as valid and as important and as rigorous and as well researched often as ordinary academic work so I, I don't see a split really and I don't think we should see a split particularly someone like Falmouth and could you tell us a bit um, more about the practicalities of starting it you're not bedding it up <laughs> I got a lot of help I got an awful lot of help. So what I did was I found the online journals that I liked best and I wrote to their editors and said, how did you do it? So they gave me a lot of ideas. Neo-Victorian studies, uh, Anne-Louise Colker, she was really, really helpful and that's a really excellent online journal. Obviously, the website and the design of the website, but then there's things you've got to apply for, like permissions and licenses. You need it all to be licensed. Go through a Creative Commons license. 
so as it, it can be properly open access while keeping copyright. For people, um, you have to get like an ISSN number. That there's quite a lot of things to do. There's more we could do, and we probably need a DOI number, but that costs, and I'm, I'm funding it at the moment, so we probably won't. <laughs> and you mentioned the journal at the when you started at the time and said it was filling a gap. Mm. Could you tell us a bit more about the gap you thought was out there? That, yeah. And just supernatural studies in general, really. That there's obviously there's the excellent gothic studies. There's a lot of there's horror studies journals. There's some really excellent examples of both of those. But th this I wanted it to be more of a sort of an umbrella place, really. Whereas we could have lots of different things. I like when your website says that you include. Yeah, we do. I mean, this this is one of the points, really, and this was one of the points for the Victorians, is there wasn't a split. I mean, yeah, I mean, on the website, it also says that we are committed to green politics, and there is an idea. I mean, the supernatural or the extra natural, it comes from nature in one way or another, whether it's like true or not. It doesn't really matter, I don't think, to tell the truth, particularly with the actual journal. I come from a social science background, so all things like the uncanny, the weird, supernatural, they're all new terms. <laughs> yeah. And I'm reading, I'm just reading out the question, which says that you have a reputation for being an excellent supervisor not and mentor. And do you have any advice for listeners who are undertaking or hoping for a career in academia? Any kind of tips? I think main, the main thing to find something you're interested in and then... I mean, it's exactly like you're doing is get involved, join associations, conferences. I think conferences are the best in the South. There's that awful word networking, but it isn't really. It's meeting nice people. It's really just the thought of And almost every opportunity of any sort I've had is from meeting people. And largely, probably 90% of conferences and there's more in with COVID. There's more and there's less opportunities. It's obviously much cheaper to attend conferences online, and you will meet people if you can do face to face as well. I think it's a really, really good way of meeting people. Yeah, look for mentors. Most people are really nice, and most people will help out postgraduate students and early career researchers. Yeah, the other thing to possibly do is is to Look at the people you admire in your field and look at sort of their career trajectory as well and what they've done and how they've done it and the sorts of things that they've done. It's been really interesting to hear about it. And I think like Greg was like, you're from the sort of more social science background of any long this is perhaps you know, might also be from a social science background and lots of death studies stuff is quite social sciencey and but I, I think there's so much room for of bringing in and including lots of humanities, get arts things in that and can create a work, like you say. And I wish everyone could see where we are and find like a cat and jump into the ombudsman. There's a baby here. So it's a, it's a really lovely institution and um, just to visit. And thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies podcast. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedevstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment, 
follow us on social media at the deaf podcast and of course spread the word